We're coming in the proclamation of God's word this morning. We're taking a little departure from the book of Romans that we are going through, seeing that it is Christmas Day. And we're going to consider one of my favorite texts that speak of the coming of Christ and his incarnation, that is God being made flesh and dwelling amongst us. That is Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. You can find it printed there in your bulletin if you want to follow along. This is God's word through his servant, Isaiah. We read, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. He said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that as we come to your word once again, that you would reveal to us the person of Christ, our Savior, our mediator, and that in seeing him, we would once again rejoice that we find forgiveness in all our sins through the grace of his gospel. So let your spirit work now in each and every heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In December of 1914, the middle of World War I, the fields of Europe were crossed, of course, by miles upon miles of trenches and shell craters and barbed wire and death. And World War I showed to the world what destructive power and carnage humans can wield and wage upon each other during times of war. Now, there had been a hope across Europe that maybe the war would end by Christmas of 1914, but it became apparent that that would not be the case. 
However, on Christmas Eve, somewhere in France, near the city of Yves, something very special happened. And nobody knows where it first began or who started it, but all along the British, the French, and German lines, caroling could be heard coming up from the trenches. Somewhere, somebody began singing Silent Night. And as you moved along the lines, you could hear that hymn echoed in both German and English and French. And eventually, soldiers laid down their weapons of war and they walked into the middle of what is called no man's land and they shook hands. And they exchanged gifts, a little bit of chocolate here, a card there. Some men even started to play games of soccer where in the mud where hours earlier shells had rained down death. And for one night there in the middle of that horrible conflict, which became known as the Great War, there was comfort. There was the comfort of peace. And sadly, though, of course, it did not last after that time, which became known as the Great Christmas Truce of 1914, the bombs began to fall again. And the, the final death toll of World War I was somewhere around 17 to 20 million people. But what that amazing incident of history shows us is that people, humans, we all have this fundamental need for the comfort of peace. There's this universal desire to see peace reign upon the earth. But sadly, as hard as we try through our own efforts to bring about that peace, we only seem to create more conflict. And we shouldn't be surprised. Because... It is in conflict that sin entered into this world. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against the Creator, they went to war with Him. And they plunged all humanity after them into this global conflict against our Creator. But God did not leave us in that horrible state of sin's turmoil. And as we see this morning in this message through the prophet Isaiah, God gives a message of comfort for those who are tired, who are wearied with the conflict they see in this world. You see, here in Isaiah, God meets our doubts with words of comfort, words of peace. Here we learn three incredible truths concerning how God brings the comfort of His peace in the midst of our toil, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of our sin. And He brings order out of disorder and mercy in the midst of the chaos of this world that is so broken by sin. And so the first thing we see God doing is that He gives the comfort of His peace in the midst of His people's failure. Isaiah chapter 40 comes to us at a most distressing time for the people of God in the Old Testament. This is a message to Judah on the eve of the destruction of the kingdom and the consequent captivity in Babylon. 
in 586 B.C. And so for the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, there is a warning of God's judgment to the people of God for their failure to keep covenant with Him, to obey His laws, to worship Him, and to know Him. But chapter 40 comes in as a breath of fresh air, a promise of peace, of reconciliation, of redemption. Isaiah is called to comfort the people of God by speaking tenderly to them, speaking to their heart this this message, this promise of peace, despite the continual failure of his people to keep covenant with him and obey his holy law. And there's two words here in this text, in these opening verses of Isaiah 40, that show us that great failure of God's people. The first is the word warfare. Now, I wish we could say that in our generation, we, uh, that the idea of warfare is a, a foreign concept to us, but we cannot. Because there is not a generation on this earth that has not seen and witnessed warfare. Violence and death are part of this fallen world, so much so that we often become numb to it. It's easy to forget that war is is constantly being waged in some part of this world. Of course, God's people in the Old Testament certainly were no stranger to warfare and violence. From the time they had entered the land of promise, They were beset by war on all sides. So a comforting promise of peace that Isaiah brings now would be welcome news indeed. But there is a different kind of warfare in view here. A warfare from which all other warfare springs. It is not the warfare that is a conflict between two state powers. But it is the warfare of humanity's rebellion against God Himself. It's the failure of people to obey God's holy law, to keep His covenant, to know Him, and to worship Him. Earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, God had this to say to His people Israel in the Old Testament. He said, Hear, O heavens, and give ear. He's calling on the heavens to, to be a witness. He says, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and are utterly estranged. The thing is, with Israel's sin, though, whenever we see it, it points to the greater problem in this world. For it is all that have sinned against God. You see, it wasn't just Judah or Israel's problem. It is our problem as well. Our sin puts us at enmity with God. 
Paul tells us in Romans 8, verse 7, that the mind, is set, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile or at enmity with God, it, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And that is the natural born state of every human as they come into this world. Enmity, an enemy of God in warfare with Him. The absence of peace. And so God's people then fail God because often when they trample upon His law, they do not view Him as a friend, but as a foe. Which leads to the second word here that exposes the, the failure of people to keep covenant with God. That word is iniquity. We see it in verse 2. Iniquity at its very roots means something that is twisted. Something that is curved inward upon itself. Earlier in Isaiah, God said, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with a cart with ropes. So like a horse that pulls a cart behind it through the mud, so we pull the guilt of our sin and we feel the heaviness of its burden. We grow weary and fatigued and we labor under its weight as it strains against us. We're in need of comfort, in need of rest, but the harder we try to unhitch that weight of sin, the more we become entangled in it. And so warfare and iniquity mean that there is no peace for the world. Something had to be done. And so God does something. He steps in again under the history of His world through the person of the Son. And He is the one who cuts those cords of sin, of iniquity that bind us to our guilt and shame. You see, the warfare, the iniquity of God's people finds its end in the person of Jesus Christ. It is in Him that we are forgiven and pardoned. In verse 2, we're told here that God's people received double for all their sins. What does he mean by that? Well, he doesn't mean that they received double punishment for all their sins. He's actually speaking of a law that we find in Exodus 22. You see, there was a legal requirement that if someone uh, was guilty of a crime of theft, they were required to pay back double what they owed. So if you stole $100, you would be required to give back $200 to the one you offended. When he says that God, that, that the peoples have had their sins, received double for all their sins, he's saying that the payment has been fully made. And it was Jesus who made that payment through his own blood. And what that means for you is that if you are one of God's covenant children by faith in Christ alone, you can be assured that the entire account of your sin is absolutely paid for. And more so, it was doubly paid for. You can be sure 
that there is not one sin that went unpaid for which Jesus did not suffer on your behalf because his payment was more than enough to meet the demands of God's law and satisfy his judgment so that you might be forgiven. What that means is that your warfare against God is now ended. No longer are you an enemy of God. You are his friends and your iniquity is completely pardoned, past, present, and future. God brings to you the comfort of his peace despite your sinful failure. The second thing we see in this text, though, about this comfort of God's peace is that God brings the comfort of his peace through the presence of of his son. In verses 3 through 5, we see a call here to make ready for God's coming presence to dwell with his covenant people. God's promised presence with his people has always been his intention. He created all that exists so that we might know him and he might know us, so that he would be our God and we would be his people. And these verses point, of course, prophetically to John the Baptist, who did pave the way for the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. John was the forerunner of Christ, the the herald who announced the arrival of King Jesus. And the idea that is being communicated here in the words of verse 6 In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for your God. The idea here is that there is coming a great dignitary, a great king. Get ready for him. Be prepared. And with the coming of any dignitary into any city, there's always preparation. I mean, if the President of the United States makes a trip abroad or even within the United States itself, the Secret Service goes ahead of him and there are many detailed preparations made and hotel rooms are picked out and and bulletproof glasses installed and rooftops are scouted and and, uh, lined with snipers. Every preparation is made to protect the President, to prepare the way. But how much more... With the way to be prepared for the king of heaven. You see, no earthly leader, no president comes close to equaling Jesus Christ. Our confidence in God's presence with us rests not in earthly princes, but in the prince of peace himself. And the pathway to his coming is paved as on a road called redemption. We should not miss the significance of where this pathway is prepared here in Isaiah 40. He says, in the wilderness, in the desert, in the harsh places, the places that are arid and dry and void of life, the places where it's easy to get lost and wander, there make a road, there prepare a way for the king. And the point of that is that even in the harshest places, even in those places that are hard and dry and void of life, will come the king of life. They cannot prevent his coming. 
See, no obstacle can impede the comfort of the promises of God's peace because he overcomes every obstacle in order to fulfill those promises of peace, including the obstacle of our own iniquity, our own guilt, our own warfare against him. We see the the process of this preparation described in verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Think of this as a, a divine construction plan to build God's kingdom on earth. Valleys are filled. Mountains are moved away. A pathway is cleared all to prepare for the coming of the king. And with the coming of Christ, a great reversal has begun. The old creation must be undone so that the new creation can come into effect. The restoration of peace involves dramatic changes. That's the point that Isaiah is getting at. As we see mountains being leveled and made flat, it sounds so violent. But the violent effects of sin must be dealt with with equal violence, and therefore Jesus suffered the violence of the cross, bearing the wrath of God, so that those who are God's people might know His peace. And so, this is the reordering work of God's redemption, and through it, the presence of God Himself in the person of Christ, as He comes into this world, is made known. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We considered this even last week in Romans that God's glory in the Bible is associated with his presence, his abiding presence with his people. So the glory of God, His light, His splendor, His majesty is all indicative of His presence with us. From the Spirit of God walking in the coolness of the garden morning with Adam to the Shekinah glory of God in the tabernacle of the wilderness and later in the temple in Jerusalem, we learn that God takes seriously this promise that I will be a God to you. I will dwell with you. My glory will be with you. And of course, we also see in Scripture, even as we saw last week, that when God's glory is removed, it points to the fact that God's judgment has fallen because of sin. Even as we saw in 1 Samuel 4, that when the Ark of the Covenant, where God's glory dwelt with His people in the tabernacle, was captured by the Philistines, and Eli and his sons die because of the sins of those sons and the idolatry of the people, and the ark is removed, Phineas's wife has a baby and names him Ichabod, meaning the glory is departed. The glory of God is gone. His presence is no longer with us. And the result was more warfare, the absence of peace. Peace. 
What's interesting about all these pictures of God's glory, though, that we see in the Old Testament is that they were only temporary. They only lasted so long. But now we have, in the coming of Christ, the glory of God's presence eternally revealed to us in Him. And so we read in the Gospel of John, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. The glory as the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. See, by knowing Jesus through faith, we know the very presence of God, His glory dwelling in our midst. And so then, it is the very presence of God revealed through the Son that brings about this comfort of peace that we so need in our lives. Even in the chaos of this life, as we await our final redemption at the second appearing of Christ, we rest in the peace of His real presence with us. And we find strength to traverse all the difficult roads of this life. Notice again verses 6 through 8. Here a comparison is made between our fragility as humans, our weakness as humans, and the eternal nature of God's Word. People wither like grass in a drought that is burnt up. Their life is like a flower that only lasts for so long and then quickly fades. But God is eternal. And because He is eternal, His Word stands for all eternity as well. And that means that we can have full assurance in this comfort, this comforting promise of peace that comes to us in the person of Christ. You see, this message of peace isn't just a message, but it is a person that we actually know. And in knowing Him, we experience the presence of God with us. The final thing that Isaiah shows us here about the comfort of God's peace is that God gives us the comfort of His peace by ruling His kingdom in power and in gentleness. Now there's a progression here in this text, a building up of different messages associated with this overall message of the comfort of God's peace. Each one is marked by a a new imperative to speak, to speak forth a message of peace. So first you have this, this call to comfort the people and to speak tenderly because they were feeling the sting of their failure, their rebellion against God. Second, In verse 3, we have the voice crying with a message of prepare, a message of preparation for the the coming of the presence of God. Then verse 6, there's this command to cry forth the faithfulness of God's word. And then we come to verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
This is a message of victory. God has come to be with His people, to comfort them and bring them peace. And He is now ruling His kingdom in power and in gentleness, thus creating a a culture of peace that is built upon the foundation of the gospel. There are two aspects of the nature of His rule that we notice here. One, His might. Now, when we think of God's might, we think of His power his strength, his ability to completely fulfill what he said he would do. And God's might is displayed in all his acts and all his judgments throughout all time. And so in might, God formed the universe with the word of his power. In might, God delivered Noah and his family during the judgment of the flood. In his might, God calls out a pagan man named Abraham from his, the land of his father to, through him to build a great nation. In might, God delivers his people from the bondage of Egypt, bending nature to his will, bringing plagues and splitting seas. And in might, God preserves his people despite their rebellious hearts through wars and famine and disease. In might, God touches the womb of a Jewish virgin and condescends to become a man. In might, Christ Jesus heals the blind and makes the lame to walk and preaches the gospel of His kingdom. In might, He bears the weight of the curse upon Himself on the cross for the sins of His people, suffering the just judgment of God for them. And in might, He walks out of the tomb on the third day, conquering death and hell forever holding them subject to the very power of His will. In might, He raises up His church, calling a people to Himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. And in might, Jesus our King will appear once again to complete that great work of redemption, of building His kingdom that He has started. And we... We, the saints of God, from all ages, will cry in one voice as we read in Revelation, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on a throne and to the Lamb. That is the mighty arm of God who rules His kingdom through the Son, Jesus Christ, our King. And it is from that strong arm of power that He gives, as we read in verse 10, a reward. What is that reward? It is the comfort of the peace of God with us. The same God who displayed the power of of His arm through creation dwells with His people. And there is no greater source of comfort than that. It means that no matter what happens to you in this life, if you are in Christ, you can rest in true peace because you know that even the worst of tragedies that would happen in this world cannot separate you from the covenant love of God who keeps His promises forever. 
That is a comforting peace indeed. But not only does God create peace by ruling the universe in power, He creates peace by ruling His people in gentleness. You see, this world sees a lot of kings and a lot of rulers who rule with power. And it sees some who might be gentle, or at least try to be. Rarely does it see one who can rule with great power, but also gentleness. And so we see in verse 11 these beautiful pastoral words, He, that is, God will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. A shepherd does several things to care for his sheep. Particularly, he protects his sheep and he feeds his sheep. Pictured here is is God's protection of his church, his people. And so throughout all history, God has protected them from wars and persecution and disaster. He continues to build his kingdom despite the kingdoms of this earth rising against it. He keeps his people from wolves of false teachers and dangerous doctrines and heresies. He continues to add to the church's number by gathering all the lambs of his people, thus growing his flock through the gospel. A shepherd, though, not only protects, but he also feeds his flock. He ensures that they have the nourishment to grow and to flourish And so it is through God's Word and through sacrament, the table and baptism, that we we feed upon the grace of God, enjoying the comfort of His presence as we find our faith strengthened in the Gospel. And there's a very personal message to these words as well. The language here in verse 11, of course, is collective. It's pointing to the people of God as a whole. But there's a sense where he seems to be speaking to the weakest of the flock, those who are struggling in their faith, those who do not feel the comfort of his peace, those who might be filled with fear and despair. Calvin writes, commenting on God's word here through Isaiah, that these words describe God's wonderful condescension For not only is he actuated by a general feeling of regard for his whole flock, but in proportion to the weakness of any one sheep, he shows his carefulness in watching, his gentleness in handling, and his patience in leading it. Here he leaves out nothing that belongs to the office of a good shepherd, for the shepherd ought to observe every sheep so as to treat it accordingly to its capacity. And especially, they ought to be supported if they are exceedingly weak. In a word, God will be mild, kind, gentle, and compassionate, so that He will not drive the weak harder than they are able to bear. That is the good shepherd who rules over us as his flock. And so perhaps today you are here on this Christmas morning 
And you need that comfort of God's peace. Because your heart doesn't know the peace of God. You are still at enmity with Him, waging war against Him. And because of that, you do face this world in fear. Well, let the words of God then speak to you. The words that He spoke long ago through His prophet Isaiah, may they be a comfort to you as you look in faith and repentance to Christ. Because He comes to bring comfort despite sinful failure. And He will give you true peace if if you but bow to Him as your King in faith and repentance. But perhaps you're here today as a Christian and you'd say, you know, I really could use that comfort of peace as well. Because we live in a restless world, a world that is in turmoil, a world that constantly rebels against God, and we feel that and we fear And our faith is often plagued with doubts. Listen then to God's word to you. He says, fear not. Fear not. Know that God in his grace is a powerful shepherd. And he's gathered you like a lamb into his arms. Arms that once fashioned the entire universe. Arms that once were stretched out on a cross of wood for you. And it is with those gentle hands that he signed an everlasting peace treaty with you as his child. A treaty that is signed with the blood of the Lamb who put to death death itself through his death. And he now lives forever, canceling out all of your sin, all of your failure, every transgression of His law, so that you do not need to live in fear. May the peace of God reign in your hearts both now and forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, there is much that we should give you praise for and thanksgiving for, and yet words fail us. Father, often we come into this world and we are so weighed down by cares from our own sinfulness, from the turmoil around us, that it is difficult to hear the message of peace, to have our hearts comforted by the gospel. And so we ask, Father, that you would comfort us once again that you would show us that through Christ we are made your people, that all of our sin is forgiven, and that we walk as righteous before you. Lord, I ask if there are those who know you not, even in this place, who have never experienced the joy of that comfort, the peace of knowing you, that you would soften hearts and open them to the good news of your gospel. And for your people... I pray that on this day you would strengthen their faith, that you would comfort them as your lambs, that you would hold them tight and speak to them your good word of peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.